Good morning. This morning's scripture reading is from Ecclesiastes chapter 2. It's found in page 659 in your pew Bible if you didn't bring your own. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, beginning at verse 12, continuing to the end of the chapter, verse 26. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can be man, what can man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. This is God's word. Don't know if you're into memorizing hymns or songs, but that's one I certainly recommend. It's one of my all-time favorites. Um, It's the picture of the hope of the gospel. Well, we're in Ecclesiastes again. You can find a a Bible in front of you, or or if you have one with you, go ahead and make your way there, chapter 2. When Meriwether Lewis and his assistant, William Clark, set out to explore the recently acquired Louisiana Territory, they had hopes of charting America's waterways, of discovering and documenting new plants and animals, of building relationship with Native Americans, and most importantly, of discovering a Northwest Passage, a navigable waterway to connect the East and the West coasts for the sake of trading with Asia. The Corps of Discovery, as their group was called, did not find such a path. But what they brought back to President Thomas Jefferson, who had commissioned the expedition, 
and who was a man who could never get enough learning and knowledge. What they brought back uh, is what historian Stephen Ambrose describes as more new information and more knowledge than Jefferson had ever got in his life in one brief period like that. The first accurate map of North American waterways and their sources, knowledge of 300 species previously unknown, acquaintance with 50 Indian tribes, and the discovery of the Rocky Mountains. So as reward for his labor, uh, Lewis was awarded 1,600 acres of land, and he was made governor, the first governor of the Louisiana Territory. Yet, despite all of his wisdom, all the knowledge and accomplishments that they gained from having led the first and most important expedition in American history, Lewis quickly found himself poorly fit for the role of governor. He was plagued with health problems. He took to drinking. He sank into a depression. When some of his expenditures were questioned by officials in Washington, he set out to travel there and resolve them. Along the way, he tried to kill himself, but he was restrained. A few weeks later, he succeeded. He took his own life. Just three years after returning as a national hero of learning and doing things that no American citizen had ever known or done before, and Lewis could no longer find reason to live. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies, just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after wind. What lasting gain is there in our wisdom and knowledge? You know, the amount of knowledge that Lewis and Clark gathered in that three-year expedition, we are exposed to in just a day or two with the web and with the news and with everything that goes on. But what does it get us? How do, how do we respond when our work and our wisdom disappoint? Well, again, we've been looking at Ecclesiastes, a book in the Old Testament. Uh, for a few weeks now, on our own expedition with the ancient sage King Solomon as our guide. And as we've said before, this book takes us down into the dark valley of Human life under the sun. Life as we see it and experience and live it day in and day out, suspending for the moment the how God fits into that equation, putting that aside. It's just what can I see, what can I hear and experience in this world under the sun? And it gives us a painfully honest portrait of the fleeting and fruitless insignificance and vanity of the few days that we have here on earth. 
Life is vapor, as Solomon puts it, chasing the wind. The valley is not a fun place to hang out in. And uh, as we've followed the preach over the last few weeks, we've had to wrestle uh, with some uncomfortable realities and inconsistencies of life. The tireless repetition of our work and our toil. So a whole lot of effort and absolutely nothing to show for it at the end of the day. The fleetingness of the fleeting pleasure of human activity and accomplishment. We've seen how nothing lasts and nothing really satisfies. Sometimes it feels like this journey through the valley is more like being stuck at the bottom of a well. You know, there's a small reminder up there, a little pinprick, that reminds you that there is something out there other than this dark, damp prison I call daily life. But there's no way to get there. There's no way to get out. No sense that dawn will ever come. But there is a method to Solomon's madness or wisdom, depending on how you look at it. And we're going to catch the first clear glimpse of that in our passage this morning. Because in order to appreciate and to genuinely hope in the vision of God that waits on the other side of that valley, when you come to the top and you see clearly and you breathe freely the joyful air of God's presence and the peace and pleasure and lasting gain and significance that comes from knowing and serving Him. To, to really take hold of that, you have to become disenchanted and utterly turned off from all the emptiness of the valley below. Otherwise, you'd never come out. You have to see what life really looks like under the sun in order to lift your eyes and look for God above the sun and the lasting joy found in Him. Now, we know from the rest of Scripture the the truth of what we sang just a few minutes ago. The hour is hastening on when we shall be forever with the Lord, when disappointment, grief, and fear are gone, sorrow forgot, love's purest joys restored. We know that in the end, God is going to make all things right when our Lord returns and establishes His new creation. And there will be great joy. Lasting joy. The part of the surprising hope of Ecclesiastes is that joy doesn't always have to wait till morning. There can be joy in the midst of sorrow. Joy amid the vanity and fruitless activity of our lives. Joy at the bottom of the well. And that joy amid all of the shortcomings of our work and our wisdom is only possible because it is a gift from God. It's a gift from God. That's what our passage is telling us this morning. So let's pray together and ask God to speak clearly by His Spirit as we look in His Word. Lord, we do come before You. Some of us are weary and confused. We know all too well the disenchantment that Solomon describes. Some of us think we've got it all together and that we don't need to take time to think about these things. Lord, you know our hearts, wherever they're at, there or somewhere else. 
Minister to our hearts this morning by your spirit. Give us eyes to see your word, ears to hear your voice, and change our hearts, God, as we reflect on the truth of the gospel. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we are going to conclude the first of several research projects that the preacher has been has undertaken in his quest for lasting gain and significance under the sun. You'll remember a few weeks ago we introduced this first research project at the end of chapter 1. And uh, Solomon identifies human activity and achievement as one part of it, and then human wisdom as the other part. In uh, 1, 12 through 15, he, he identified human activities. Yeah, I'm going to study that. And then he unpacked that for us in 2, 1 through 11, which is what we looked at last week. The second part of his study, which takes up um, part of our passage, and then we'll look at his, his conclusions of the whole thing today. The second part of that study is in 2, 12 through 16, and the object is human wisdom. That's what he's going to slide under the microscope next. And he introduced that to us back in the last part of chapter 1, verses 16 and 18, through 18. I want to look at those verses again as Solomon sets up the study. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who are over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after the wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Notice how when we come to chapter 2, verse 1, he picks up that subject again. So he's finished his examination of human work, and now he's going to look at wisdom. Verse 12, so I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. So if, if my achievements... And all my activity, if they don't add up and they don't last, then what about wisdom itself? The ability to live life well, to apply knowledge to the variety of life's circumstances. What about wisdom? And the reason that he turns to consider wisdom is given to us in the second half of verse 12, uh, which has a long history of confusing people. And I don't know that there will be any clarity given to it this morning. Uh, for what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has been already done. That's why he wants to study wisdom. Now, he may be saying here that if I don't study this with all my surpassing wisdom and knowledge, well, no one who comes after me will be able to make any better sense of it. So he might be saying that. Um, more likely, I think, He's concerned with what his successor is going to do with all of his accomplishments that he used uh, that he used his wisdom to accomplish. So, you know, I turn to consider wisdom, madness and folly for, for what will the man who comes after the king do with what's already been done? I think that might make better sense of it. Either way, there's already a noticeable cloud hanging over his investigation the cloud of the inevitable death that awaits him. But his initial observations are relatively positive. You take wisdom in one hand and madness and folly, foolishness in the other, wisdom clearly outweighs in the benefits it provides for life. 
uh, as he says in verse 13. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head. He can see where he's going. The fool walks in darkness. So consider the obvious difference in life quality between someone who exercises regularly and spends their money within their budget versus someone who eats every day, three times a day at McDonald's and racks up the credit card bill and all the latest clothes and gifts and gadgets. I mean, the life quality difference will be clear there. Or think about uh, the light of advances in science and medicine, of which Boston sets the pace in a lot of ways, and compare that to the darkness of medical treatments just over 100 years ago. So which procedure would you rather have your doctor prescribe to you to address your fever? Going to let a little bit of blood out of your arm or give you two Tylenol? You know, there's more gain in wisdom. Or even if we look at it from a moral angle, which I think the, the language of madness and folly seems to suggest here, you know, there's a logical, clear difference in life quality between someone who tries to keep God's rules and someone who, you know, God's rules like loving others, telling the truth, not murdering, those kinds of things. There's, there's a gain in that over against someone who tries to uh, spends their life making up their own rules and breaking everyone else's. So wisdom simply makes sense in that, in that level. But does it get you anywhere, this wisdom under the sun? Is there any lasting gain for life? Solomon's conclusion is pretty discouraging. In the middle of verse 14. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart, this is also a vanity. For the wise, for of the wise as of the fool, there's no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So like Asaph in Psalm 73, who looked at the plush life of the ungodly and wondered why he had spent his whole life following God and suffering, Solomon realizes that his great wisdom avails to nothing under the sun. And the reason is because of the great equalizer, death. No matter how wise we become, our wisdom and our knowledge is powerless to stop death from happening. We are surrounded by some of the finest educational institutions in the world. We walk home from hip surgery. We have artificial hearts. We have research degrees in Bible and theology. We can you know, dot every theological I and cross every theological T in just the right place, you still die. You're still buried. End game. In this light, looking for lasting gain and significance in our wisdom under the sun is no more helpful than looking to work or wealth or pleasure. It's all vapor 
a mist that disappears before you can grab hold of it. Charlotte Allshouse shared with me a powerful illustration that God gave her in her own pursuit of musical achievement. Imagine yourself in a crowded cattle car on a train traveling to some unnamed death camp. The train is overcrowded. No one can even sit down. One corner is used for a latrine. The opposite corner has a high, small window. A very few people can get to that window sometimes and get a breath of fresh air. They have to push and climb their way over others to get there. Their moment of breathing the fresh air is very short and someone will soon take their place. That moment is their earthly prize. All the time they spend in that crowded cattle car is aimed at reaching that prize. No one in the car knows what horrors are waiting at the death camp. Death shows no partiality. It strikes the wise and the foolish, the rich and the poor, the sick and the healthy, the orthodox and the heretic. And all our efforts to become great in the meantime, whether by work or wisdom or wealth or something else, are like clamoring for that short breath of air on the way to the death camp. That's the picture. So what do we do with that? What do we do when our work and our wisdom disappoint? If this is all there is, again, we're studying life under the sun. Put God aside for a moment. If this is all there is, there's only one possible response when work and wisdom disappoint. Solomon gives it to us in verses 17 to 21. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and I gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. As if the realization that none of his work or great knowledge could stop the train from arriving at the death camp if that, as if that wasn't enough, the idea that someone might come along after him and completely undo his life's work was utterly unbearable. He hated life at that thought. He despised and despaired over it all. And it's not a little ironic that as King Solomon saw the height of Israel's kingdom, the glory days of God's covenant people, Israel, his son Rehoboam witnessed its irreparable fracturing and dismantling. And the same thing happens today. You know, the family business tanks under the son's or daughter's new management. The children watch as the bank bulldozes their parents' house 
for a parking lot. All the wisdom, all of the toil that went into building that dream home and someone else takes it and it's gone. And all we can do is throw up our arms at the inconsistencies and quandaries of life. Who can make sense of it all? This too is vanity. And here we see another sense, another way in which Solomon uses that word, vanity or vapor. Something that's impossible to grasp or understand. Oh, sometimes it's impossible for us to make sense of life. A lot of times it's impossible. And because we can't take hold of it, our circumstances take us for a roller coaster ride. We go up and down with our hearts cycling back and forth between delight and despair, delight and despair, all depending on what's around the next corner. But always traveling with a subtle fear and pent-up frustration because of the two unmistakable realities that life doesn't always work the way it should and that we are not in control. Think about that. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So Solomon comes to the conclusion of his first study. He sums it up in verses 22 and 23. And notice the echo of chapter 1, verse 3 here in, in this verse. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun. For his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. This is life in the valley. This is life at the bottom of the well. Our toil amounts to nothing. We're spinning that hamster wheel just faster and faster, and it goes nowhere. Our days are full of sorrow. We are surrounded with reminders that we live in a broken, fallen world. Everything that we put our effort into, our work, our relationships, our health, our family, our religion, trying to grill a pork chop without drying it out, everything that we give our hands to, ultimately fleeting and fruitless. A striving after the wind. Work itself is a vexation. You know, unpleasant, painful, boring, pointless. And when it's over, one can't even find comfort in a good night's sleep. Especially with a teething baby in the house. Now, can we step back? We look at this. There is something about this that is simply not right. Things should not work this way. What can we do but throw our arms up in the air? But listen to how one author frames this situation. To be outraged at what is universal and unavoidable suggests something of a divine discontent. So, as we sit here and we say, this isn't right, something's wrong here, and we're outraged over something that's both 
universal and unavoidable. Everybody's going to face it. That suggests something of a divine discontent. A discontent placed in our hearts by God himself. As we wrestle with the hollowness of life, there is a sense in which God wants us to see the rat race and to protest. So that we'll look to him rather than to everything in front of us. Looking for something we're never going to find. It's certainly tempting to follow Solomon's lead and to despair of life. Or perhaps to just resign ourselves to a miserable existence. Biding our time until we die or the Lord returns. And that's when we'll really find the, the relief from all our woes. And you know what? That part is true. When the Lord returns and establishes once and for all his heavenly new creation, there will come a time, morning will dawn, God will dwell again with his people, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death will be no more. And that is a beautiful, lasting joy. That's our ultimate hope. And it's been secured for us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God's eternal Son. But according to Ecclesiastes, surprisingly according to Ecclesiastes, joy doesn't always have to wait till morning. Joy doesn't always have to wait for the Lord's return. There is joy at the bottom of the well, in the thick darkness of the valley. And that's where Solomon concludes this morning in verses 24 to 26. There is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he's given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. There's nothing better. That's a very positive statement for such a dismal book. Where does this come from? What does he mean? Well, every now and then in Ecclesiastes, the clouds part and we catch a glimpse of life from an above the sun perspective, from a God's eye perspective. What life looks like when God is part of the picture, life under his rule and his mercy. And that's what we have here. Even in the pit, there's joy to be found in the otherwise meaningless activities of life. Things like eating and drinking and working. Now, it's tempting to see these verses and read them as kind of a, a carpe diem, seize the day mentality that says, well, since we're going to die anyway, we might as well have fun now. Uh, a kind of escapism. Or even as though what, what Solomon's suggesting is to find joy in the little things in life because that's going to take your mind off the bigger problems. I don't think that's what he's after at all. Solomon is talking about real joy. Lasting joy. 
a joy found right smack dab in the middle of our meaningless toil under the sun. A joy that lifts the heart and lightens the step. A joy that comes from God himself. It's a gift. You can't come up with this. It's a gift from God. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? If this world is all there is, then this doesn't make sense. It cannot make sense. In fact, for those who seek life apart from God, true joy is impossible. Whatever joy the sinner has in his work or his wisdom fades like the morning dew. It doesn't last. It doesn't satisfy. Moreover, what they have will ultimately be taken away from them and given to God's people in the end, as Jesus himself talks about in Luke 19, 26. But as Solomon periodically reminds us, this is not all there is. There is God. And we have to factor him into the equation. We have to step back and see who this God is. A sovereign God who is at work in the meaningless and vain toil of our lives. From the foreclosure notice to the diagnosis to the 12th negative pregnancy test of the year. God is at work in the midst of the vanity. There is a gracious God who grieves with us, who takes that suffering and that sorrow and even our sin and rebellion onto himself in Jesus on the cross who cares deeply for us amid the vanity that surrounds us, and whose gift to us amid the shortcomings of our work and our wisdom is nothing less than joy. A joy that is first and foremost in Him, but also through Him even in the vanity of life. Now, as we've already seen and as we're going to see again, If our ultimate hope, our ultimate joy and lasting significance is rooted in anything other than God, we are spending our foolish days fighting over a momentary breath of fresh air on the way to the death camp. Through faith in Jesus, we are given a ticket off that train. That's something to rejoice in. That's a big deal to rejoice in. To be forgiven our sins and cleansed and given life. Jesus' wisdom was not in vain. With it, he made this creation and redeemed this creation. Jesus' work was not in vain. By it, he purchased us with his own blood to redeem us and bring us out of the vanity back to God. There's forgiveness, freedom, cleansing, lasting significance, and a joy that can never perish or fade, only in Jesus Christ. As Asaph eventually concludes in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. There is much joy, lasting joy to be found in Jesus. 
But again, that's not the kind of joy Solomon's talking about here. That joy, joy in Jesus, is the necessary backdrop. It's the foundation. It's the centerpiece of all our joy, as is the the joy of, of his coming salvation when we will be rescued and invited into God's presence forever in the heavenly new creation. But Solomon's talking about a joy that God gives us right here and right now in the midst of the trial that we call life. As one author clarifies, the gift of God here does not make this meaninglessness go away. The gift of God makes this vanity enjoyable. And there are two reasons for this. God's sovereignty and Christ's sufficiency. If God is in control and if Jesus is enough, we can laugh and rejoice in the vanity of our daily lives. We can live with a joy, even though this world's fallen in sin, we can live with a joy that comes from knowing that our work whether it lasts or not, is still part of God's good design for his creation. And that in Christ, that work can be redeemed and used once again for God's purposes and offered up to him as a a worthy sacrifice. We can take joy in all our toil and labor, not just the fruit of the labor, not just what we get out of it, the paycheck at the end of the day, but the, the work itself. Eating, drinking, washing dishes, mowing the lawn, crunching numbers, grading papers, studying for tests, waiting in the airport terminal, bathing dirty kids, again, sitting in traffic, again. We can even laugh at it, at the ridiculousness of it all, knowing that because Jesus' work is finished, his redeeming work on the cross And our hope is secure that whatever work we do, whether it lasts or not, can be offered in joyful worship to God. So how do you respond when your work and your wisdom disappoint? When they don't give you what you thought they would provide? If what you know and what you do is all you are, if that's your life and your hope, you're still trying to live in the cattle car. But if Jesus is all your hope, if Jesus and your identity in him is who you are, then whatever you put your mind to studying, whatever you put your hands to accomplishing, whatever you do that's done in gratitude to him, in worship to him, in dependence on him, can be given as an offering up to God and enjoyed. In the meantime, by his grace, according to his gift, there is joy at the bottom of the well in Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, we confess, as we look at what Solomon's talking about, that makes no sense. And we confess that though we might even be able to agree with it, we so rarely experience it. Our hearts are torn to and fro by all that we spend our time doing. And we're tired. 
we're weary. I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak the life and joy and hope and peace of Jesus into every heart. Hearts that don't know him yet, may you wake them up. Hearts that do know you and are weary and burdened, may you give them rest. Hearts that are bursting in joy, may you fan the flame. May we all seek to rejoice in you and to take heart in what you've given us to do. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.